Well, as a church this year, sort of moving forward into 2023, uh, one of the things that we're going to uh, push across the table to you um, as we get going is this question, the question of uh, where are you? If you're not here, if you're not here on a Sunday, where are you? And if you are here on a Sunday, where are you? How are you participating in the life and the expression of the gospel here at Freeway? Where are you in your relationship with Jesus? Where are you in your love of God? Where are you uh, at with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Where are you in relationship with your brothers and sisters that you, that you sit next to? Where are you in relationship to your neighbours that you live next to, that you, you work with? Is the transformative message of the gospel uh, getting exercised? Is it getting nourished? Is it shaping you? Is it challenging you? Is it being multiplied? Where are you? Are you in a small group? Have you found a place to serve? How are you partnering in the gospel, its message and its movement here at Freeway, here in Chelsea, here where, where God has placed you? And we're hoping and praying that 2023 is a year of vibrant growth, spiritually, relationally, and expressively. And none of that happens. Like we can talk about it all we like at leadership. I can preach about it all I like up here. But none of that happens without you. Over the past three or four years, we normally kind of ease on into the, into the year with a, a summer psalm series. Uh, but this year we're going to kick things off. We're going to get things rolling with a series from the, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we're calling this series a No Greater Joy. No Greater Joy Than Jesus. It's the reality, it's the deep motivating core that, um, that marked the Apostle Paul's life, shaped and drove everything that he did after he had encountered himself, after he had encountered the risen Lord Jesus somewhere around sort of 33 to 36 AD, about one to three years after the crucifixion of Jesus, depending on what timelines you use. Paul is on his way to Damascus to use all of his resources, all of his energy, all the backing of the uh, Jewish church, if you like. Uh, Luke says that he was uh, breathing threats and murder to extinguish the news of the followers of Jesus. News that Jesus, though he was crucified, had, had risen from the dead, was back to life. And that faith in that news as a validating all of Jesus' claims of who he was and what he came to do, faith in that news, trust in that news, affected something in people's lives, led to a, a new quality of life. It didn't just add information to people. It, it transformed them. It transformed them with their relationship with God and it transformed them in what motivated them to live. That news that news that Paul found so offensive of a crucified Messiah who claimed to be God in the flesh, who'd come in an, in an act of grace to die for the sins of people, to bring them into peace with God, that news now stood or appeared, was face to face with the Apostle Paul. 
on the Damascus Road. Irrefutable, undeniable, but not to crush Paul, to question Paul. Why does he find this gospel and the people it makes so offensive that he has to go about removing it from the face of the earth, from, from society? Paul, why do you persecute, marginalize, and seek to destroy what has come to give you the approval and the assurance and the peace with God that you, that you work so hard to earn, that you work so hard to achieve? You can read about that story in Acts 9 and in Acts 28. It was this encounter, an encounter that turned all of Paul's anxieties, all of Paul's endless sort of trying to maintain and achieve his status and his goodness into an irrefutable, undeniable joy now found in Jesus, who is grace and peace to souls that are anxious, that are trying to work their own salvation, that are alienated from God. And it is this personal encounter with Jesus that affirmed and affected the news of the gospel in Paul that motivated and compelled and drove Paul to be who he is and what he is, who now describes himself at the beginning of his letter to the Philippians as a slave, or better translated, as a bond servant of Christ, to partner with people, to partner with Christ in sharing the joy and the reality of encountering Jesus, of knowing him and having that shape your life, the good news about Jesus. Well, some 13 years later, countless stories of Paul himself being partnered with of people sowing in to Paul's life like Paul when he was converted it wasn't like Paul all of a sudden became this super gospel spreader he's got this 13 year journey of being discipled and taught and nurtured stories of adventure and adversity all mingled in there this is the building this is the growing of the deep joy that still fueled the apostle's heart in fact, it had matured into a fearless church planter, pastor that we find throughout Luke's recording of his life in the book of Acts. And it's this, this transformed life that saw Paul cross the Aegean Sea from Troas in Asia to Philippi in Macedonia and take the gospel for the first time into Europe on what's known as his second missionary journey. And you can read about that in the book of Acts from chapters 15 to 18 but most relevant to us is chapter 16 where Paul arrives in Philippi around 49 to 52 AD and you guys are like what's with the dates Mason why do you keep taking, talking about these dates the dates are important the dates mean that, that this happened in the lifetime of people who witnessed the death and the resurrection of Jesus that these are eyewitness stories of what's going on lots of people like to say that that the particularly chapter 2 in Philippians was made up later perhaps by the church to promote you know the deity of Jesus and his death and his resurrection and yet we find this stuff going on 13 14 years after he died and, and rose to life it, it's historically recorded so that's that's why that's important Philippi was a city of major importance too and major renown. It was originally named after Philip II. He's the father of Alexander the Great. Just whacked that away for a trivia day sometime. Um, it, it's an honoured city. It was the place of the Battle of Philippi, you know, uh, after the assassination of uh, Julius Caesar, uh, Marcus, 
Mark Anthony and Octavia and Brutus and Gaius, you know, all of that stuff. Anybody watch? Well, who's that dude who wrote those plays? Did you study them in English? Shakespeare, et tu, Brutus, that kind of thing. Yeah, all of that. Thanks. That's Philippi. It was originally, it, sorry, I went back to the top of my thing. But here's the thing too about Philippi is that it, 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 its citizens enjoyed the same rights and privileges, even though it's in Europe, its citizens enjoyed the same rights and privileges as people who lived in Rome. It was under what was known as the Italian law. So if, if you lived in Philippi, if you were born in Philippi, you, you were essentially a Roman citizen. You had the same rights and the same privileges as people born there. It was considered little Rome. And it's something that Paul plays on when he reminds the believers that their citizenship is in heaven. Like, don't be envious of these things. Philippi was populated with retired soldiers and it was known for its patriotism to Rome, its nationalism, and it was secular and pluralist in its kind of culture. And when Paul arrived there, he faced opposition to his preaching. We read about it in Acts 16. They dragged him into the marketplace one day, a site that archaeologists have actually dug up and found it just as Luke describes it in Acts 16. They dragged him in there to face the magistrate who beat Paul and Silas and threw them into jail for not affirming the philosophical pluralism of Rome. A stance, a settled kind of idea that knowledge and objective truth is impossible. You can't have or know what is true. That's something Pilate affirmed when he, when he, when he was questioning Jesus. You know, what is truth? He was saying to Jesus, you can't have objective truth. That's what Rome's built on. In fact, these kind of claims are oppressive. They're immoral. They're wrong. They're offensive. They're even bigotrous. And they're seditious. They're bad for society. Does that sound familiar to you? Truths like yours, Paul, stop human flourishing. Truth claims of Jesus and of God and one way to salvation stop human flourishing. Rome is not too dissimilar to Victoria. It was in this environment in which this community of believers grew, grew, flourished into the church, the Philippian church, faithful to the message and the mission of Jesus. They faced the same ongoing external opposition as Paul, but they grew and they flourished. But now, as word gets to Paul, there's a little bit of an internal disruption. There's some things going on and some influences of a religious nature that are starting to be of concern. Something that Paul has become aware of due to the news that he received from Epaphroditus when he finally made it to Rome to deliver Paul a gift from the Philippian church. And it is this Christian community that Paul now writes to in his letter known as the Philippians sometime around 62 AD, most likely from his imprisonment in Rome, where he'd been sent, partly because he appealed to Rome, uh, for the plague, uh, for, the, for the social scourge, as Tertullius put it in Acts 24, of preaching the truth about Jesus, the claims of Jesus and what they do in a person's life. And you can read about that, Luke's historical account of that, in Acts 24 to 28, about how Paul gets to Rome. That's Philippians. That's the crowd that he's writing to. You're probably 
more familiar with the content of this letter than you know. It's filled with those lovely kind of coffee cup, t-shirt, sticker verse, verses that you find in this book that seek to inspire and warm the hearts and the minds of believers. You've got in the first chapter there, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I know one of you have got that on a coffee cup at home. And then in chapter 2 we have what uh, Tim Mackey describes as the centre of this letter's gravity. It's a poem that outlines how Jesus accomplishes our salvation through humility and self-sacrifice, but then in that making him worthy of all glory and honour. And in chapter 3, Paul contrasts his joy, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, uh, contrasts that with his own achievements and considers them as significant as human effluent in comparison. That probably wouldn't make it onto a shirt like... My life was poo until I met you. (laughs) First sermon back. Um, And this one, I see tattooed on various basketballers all the time. On their arms, on their shoes. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's Philippians 4.13. And Paul would cringe at how we've domesticated these truths of the gospel to coffee mugs and t-shirts. His purpose was to encourage the hearts and the minds of the Philippians. He wanted these truths to be inside of them, not not just novelty gifts that they picked up from Kurong. And by extension, he wants them inside of you and I. He wants them to shape you, that you would know no greater joy than these truths, no greater joy than Jesus, no greater meaning than what is found in him. No greater assurance in life than knowing Jesus and partnering in the sharing of the gospel, even in a hostile, oppositional environment. It's a timely letter, I think, for us to dive into this year. Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints Uh, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins this letter in his usual accepted way of identifying who is writing the letter, who the authors are, him along with Timothy, and then who they are writing to. They're writing to the saints in Philippi. But added to these normative uh, ways of starting a letter, of writing a letter in that day and that culture, Paul adds the transformed identities and realities that they both share. They are all in Christ. Paul is stating that even though they live in geographical and cultural settings, they live in Philippi and he's in Rome, chained to a Roman guard, environments that in lots of ways are opposed, are oppositional to their faith and to the sharing of the gospel, And those kind of things are important, but these things are merely the sphere in which they live. The source of their life and what defines who they are and how they operate in these spheres is Christ, is their relationship with him. Paul, writing from a Roman Roman imprisonment, does not write Paul a prisoner of Rome. He writes Paul and Timothy, slaves or Uh, bond servants of Christ Jesus. It is not the Roman Empire who owns these chaps. 
They are not dependent on Rome for their lives. Everything for Paul is relativized and approached through a relationship of being in partnership with Jesus. They are servants of Jesus. And Paul didn't have a what would Jesus do shirt. Paul just had Jesus. And this Jesus, the Lord of the universe, is the one who had first served him, emptying himself of all of his rights to glory and then taking on the role of a servant, humbling himself to the extent of death. A death that saw Jesus exchanging all of his glory for all of Paul's sin. The ways in which Paul had placed himself over and against Jesus. The ways in which Paul had sought to earn God's favor and put God in his debt. The ways in which he stood on his own achievements and not the grace and the promises of God. This in this servanthood, Paul is simply imitating his master, living out the high calling in humility. And he writes to them, not as some kind of religious overlord, but as a servant leader whose joy is in their flourishing. Their flourishing comes from the truth that they, that they share, you see. Because that is what the gospel does to people set in places of leadership and authority. They exercise it not for their own gain, not for their own grandeur, but, but for the joy and the good of others. And that's the approach that Paul has. And that's what John writes about in, in, in 3 John 1.4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And about the Philippians, he writes to them addressing uh, the identity and the activities that they live out because of their common faith in Jesus. Namely, that they are saints, people that God has set apart for a radical life of holy living. This by means of operational grace in their lives. They are no longer merely people who live and kind of blend into the culture at Philippi. They stand out. And they shine like lights in a crooked generation. They bear witness to the joy that is found in Christ. But people look at them and go, what, what makes this bunch of people so happy? What's at the center? Why, why are they irrepressible? Why can Paul say, well, for me to live, uh, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain? It's because Jesus is at the center of them. To be a saint is to be in personal relationship and partnership with Jesus no longer pursuing sin but delighting in a lifestyle that deepens respects and honors relationships relationships with God relationships with family marriages work business all shaped by knowing Jesus they are not self-serving in these spheres but shaped by Christ they are selfless seeking the good of others as they are in partnership with Jesus. They are in partnership with the people around them to this end. They are traveling a different path than the one that the culture around them celebrates and, infer and affirms, but they are shaped by the joy of the common experience of this journey. Within their community, there are those identified as shepherds and stewards, overseers and deacons, people of authority, people uh, set apart, 
to, to nurture the church, but they are using their gifts and talents to serve the church, to serve each other in their faith. Everything about the Christian life is a partnership in fellowship to serve and deepen each other in our joy and our journey with Jesus. This is who and what they are in Christ. At the center of their fellowship, their relationship with each other is a relationship with Jesus. And this fellowship, this shared participation has a further uh, outworkings, if you like. And, and Paul just puts it in a salutation of greeting. He just says, grace and peace. Paul's salutation of grace and peace is not asking that they receive saving grace. They already have it. They are saints. They have trusted in the promises of Christ from the cross. They are recipients of saving grace, new life through the spirit, peace with God. That is the reality of their lives. This salutation is Paul's encouragement to them to, to live out that grace. That the all-sufficient grace of God would shape how they live with each other and before the city of Philippi. Paul is saying, you have grace, now be grace. Let it be the source of your joy in all circumstances. Let it shape your relationships and what you do. And likewise, it is not peace with God, Paul calls into view here. That is already theirs as well. This is, peace, this is the peace of God, peace from God. Peace with God leads to the peace of God. Only God gives unshakable inner tranquility in the midst of life's oppositions in the midst of life's raging storms this security comes from knowing that the god who is sovereign over all the whole universe moves toward you with grace and pours all his resources out on you as a loving father grace is the root peace is the fruit i read somewhere in one of those commentaries i couldn't find where it was but this is the shared atmosphere. This is the shared experience of these saints as they partner in fellowship at Philippi. This is the source of their joy. And it turns, and it turns out in Paul's letter. It turns up in, in, in his writing back to them. Having reminded them of the realities of being in Christ, Paul then kind of begins to reminisce you know, of the relationships and their own history of shared partnership and, and, and the joy of it wells up in him and it pours out on the, the page of this letter as it travels back and it escalates to a vow there in verse 8 that God is his witness. He is bonded to them with the same affection, the same kind of love and affection that saw Jesus go to the cross and die for them on their behalf. It's an emotive, powerful partnership that Paul has with these believers. I thank God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with grace partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in defense and the confirmation of the gospel for God as my witness how I yearn with all affection of Christ Jesus 
You can imagine the scene between Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus that led to the outpouring of this into Paul's letter. Once Epaphroditus has arrived and he's given Paul the gift from the Philippians and recounted this epic trip that he's had from Philippi to Rome where he nearly dies twice but he punches on and fights on and gets there. He's kind of like a Marvel character. But Paul, after recounting these stories, Paul would say to Epaphroditus, Hey, how's Lydia? Remember when we met Lydia in that prayer meeting outside the city gates? Who could forget Lydia? Best dressed person I've ever met. And her house. How good was her house? How good was it to recover at Lydia's house after our time in prison? She's just so generous with her resources. For all her wealth and status, she's just so humble in her relationships. Speaking of recovering from prison, what about that jailer and his family? How are they? What a story of grace. Does he still weep at communion? And how are his girls? His girls could sing. I smile every time I think of Jailer Boy teaching him those songs that he heard in that jail that night when we were in prison. Say, what a slave girl? Is she still kind of rolling that indie rock look? She was a handful, but what a ministry of love, of justice to the poor and the marginalized. Nothing funnier than seeing Lydia and slave girls sit together at worship. You can read about Paul's fond, affectionate memories of the Philippians in Acts 16. And now, Epaphroditus, here you are with this gift. Here you are partnering still with me, here in chains in prison for the gospel. Story after story of partnership in the gospel, of lives transformed by grace and peace of God. Paul just pours it all out in his letter to the Philippians. They have partnered with him from the first moment when, they, when he met Lydia to this very moment where Epaphroditus turns up. And he doesn't care how tender-hearted it is or how he sounds because they have always supported him. They have always partnered with him. Even when he's in prison, even when people are mocking him, they have no shame in their pastor and the gospel that he preaches, even though he's a jailbird like some others, and we'll get to them later in the letter. So they shared stories and ongoing stories between Paul and the Philippians fill his prayers. Because Paul knows that it's not all beer and skittles. It's a hard go at times. So Paul reminds them that saints persevere because God finishes what he starts. This is where deep confidence and joy comes from. It isn't us that keeps our Christian faith going. It isn't us that keeps our church going. It's actually Jesus who keeps it all going. It's the transformation in us that we experience and that we see in others around us. It's the grace and peace of God that holds us in place, that, that keeps us going. Hard times, opposition, social marginalization, imprisonment, these are not signs of God's absence. These are environments to partner in the grace and the peace, the shared stories of joy at what God does with people who partner with him and trust in him. 
Do you have the same passion as Paul? Do you have stories like Paul? Partners like Paul? Where you sit around a fire pit or a barbecue, where you sit by the river with a, a rod and a beverage and and deep joy wells up as your conversations start to get rolling and you marvel at what God has done. As you recall, life together, story together, shared partnership in the gospel. What are the stories of your life that bring you joy? Think about that. What are the stories of your life that bring you joy? Are they gospel stories? Are they stories of partnering with each other? We want to build some stories this year. I want to sit around in five or ten years' time and laugh and cry and be drawn into prayer as I reminisce about those that I've partnered with in the gospel and that it would be joy. I want 2023 to be one of those years that we talk about. Where are you in this partnership? What do we need to do to get you engaged, to get you involved? What conversations do you want to have you want to be able to come and have with us that you could be engaged, that you could begin to partner and have shared story. Come and talk. Come and chat. Well, as I said, Paul is not trotting out mere sentimentality or nostalgia. He isn't sitting there going, hey, they were the days of Paphroditus, weren't they? Tell Timothy about how good it was back then. Now Paul wants this partnership to grow. He wants it to be like two Australian batsmen just tearing South Africa apart. So Paul is praying that their love, for their love, that the outworking of grace and peace that they have in God, that that partnership that they share would abound more and more. He is praying for the activity of joy to increase, to improve, Abound. He prays that their lives be more than words, that their lives be deepening in the knowledge of God that would lead to a life more and more like one that reflects and lives out and looks like the life of Jesus. The same love that he had in us abounding in action. Not a pushover love that's all permissive. True love does not affirm everything but it nurtures what is godly and it corrects what is not. The knowledge and the wisdom to love, to live a life that Paul describes here as the fruit of righteousness comes from participating, being in fellowship with Jesus and having our own lives transformed by a relationship and intimacy and vulnerability and accountability with him and then lived out in a community like this. In his prayer for the Philippians, he prays that they would be pure, uh, sincere, and blameless. It's a description that takes its imagery from the terracotta, from the, from the clay pot uh, industry. 
The shady operators would fill the cracks of their dodgy pots with wax and then smear over them to hide the imperfections. A way of testing if a pot was without wax, which is where we get the word sincere or pure from, was to sun test it, to put it up against the light of the sun and to expose if there was light coming through if there was any wax or, or to put it out in the, in the heat of the sun and see if the wax would melt out of the cracks. That's where we get the word, pure and sincere from. Paul uses it to get the meaning of the meaning from this activity of what a life looks like. Paul is saying wisdom and knowledge to love appropriately, to know how to partner in the gospel with each other, that leads to a fruit of righteousness, of, of shared stories like the ones we've been talking about, is first to have your own story examined. It's first to have your own story melted by the presence of Jesus, and the love of God and the work of the Spirit. It's letting Jesus get to work on the cracks in your own lives. His activity in our lives that then leads to the deepest of joy, the greatest of adventures, and the glory of God. Let's pray. But let's not just pray here this morning. Let's be like Paul. Let's be praying for an ongoing story. For the rest of January, I want to come down to the church between 6.30 and 7.30 in the morning, 7.30 and 8.30 at night on Mondays to pray and to seek God and to ask how it is that we partner together, how it is that we journey together this year and years to come. So if you want to join me, I'll be in here. Even you people online can do that. But let's pray. Loving God, we are grateful for this letter from, the, from Paul to the Philippians as he writes to this, this community that, that in a way is flourishing but is experiencing some, some cracks that are starting to appear. But, but as Paul thinks about their flourishing in their community and their shared story, he is just filled with the joy of shared narrative of partnering with Jesus and them to advance the gospel in their lives and in the lives of people around them. And our prayer as we kick off 2023 is that that, that question, that desire would be pushed across the table to us, that we would kind of just address it and then see how it is in the coming year that we, that we would partner with you and what you're doing here in Chelsea. We're grateful for what you do in our lives. We're grateful for the grace and the peace that we have received. Our prayer is that we would be lights that shine in a crooked generation. Amen.